Welcome aboard research vessel Quest on a voyage into Plymouth Sound. I'm Richard Hollingham and this is the Planet Earth podcast. We're just going past Plymouth Hoe on our right and heading along the coast into Cornwall and with me is Steve Widdicombe from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory. They operate the boat. Steve, what's the plan for today? Well, today we're uh, taking part on our regular benthic survey where we're visiting a number of sites where we're trying to understand how the biology and the chemistry of our oceans are working. Now, we're up just behind the bridge, quite a a sizeable boat, bigger than I thought it would be, and the main deck, a bit like a, a trawler, but rather than fishing nets, you've got quite a lot of scientific equipment dotted around. Well, yes, we have. I mean, a study like this requires a a host of different sampling equipments because what we're trying to do is piece together lots of different uh, measurements which require either pieces of the seabed or samples of the seawater. So in order to get that, we need to deploy all these bits of kit that you see in front of you. Well, more on all that later on. Also this week, I'll be investigating whether the world is experiencing more earthquakes. They're not like a a person's heartbeat. They're not going boom, boom, boom. They're going boom, 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 in that way. But as we head out to our sampling site, let's get the latest from the rainforest. We issued scientist Tim Cockrell with an audio recorder to capture his experiences working on insects in northern Borneo. Here's his latest dispatch. And it's not for the squeamish. It's about 5am, it's still dark outside, I've just woken up and I'm just about to go and get my forest gear on and go out into the jungle. We're just about to head into the forest. I'm with Sam, my research assistant from the UK. The sun's starting to come up a bit now, it's a bit brighter. Uh, we're standing on the suspension bridge over the River Sagama, right next to the field centre, and you can really see the effects of the rain from the night before. Yesterday the river was just a nice, clear, picturesque trickle, and now it's turned into this milky, tea-coloured, raging torrent. It's full of sticks and bits of detritus, so the rain has obviously washed everything away down the river. So we're all kitted out, we've got wellies, we've got leech socks, and we're going to head out to our field site. Standing below a Bornean gibbon, it's about 40 metres above me. This is one of the wake-up calls of the rainforest. It's dangling by one arm from the canopy. And this one's a female, you can tell by the, the call that it's making. And it's presenting its call across the forest. It's establishing its territory. They do this every morning. We've stopped some breakfast, it's about 8 o'clock, and the reason that we're in the forest is that we're setting up an experiment that we're going to come back and check tomorrow, and we're also sussing out one of our field sites. 
And the reason that we're out here so early, really, is because we decided that this is when the forest gets up, so we'll get up as well and see what we can see. And it really is the best time in the morning to see all of the kind of big species, the charismatic megafauna, as biologists call them. So this morning we've seen gibbons, we've seen red-leaf monkeys, we've seen barking deer, we've seen bearded pigs, and loads and loads of species of bird as well. And it's a really atmospheric time to be out in the forest too. It's shrouded with a gorgeous mist, with the shafts of sunlight seeping through as the sun comes up. And although I say it's when the forest wakes up, really it's more like a change of shifts. So all of the animals that have been active during the night are now finding somewhere to hide and going to bed before the sun comes up. And lots of the other animals that are active during the day, as you can hear the insects are coming up, the insects are starting to call now, lots of the birds are starting to call. We get a dawn chorus par excellence like nowhere else I've ever been. So we're going to go and set up our experiment now. And thankfully, despite last night's rain, the leeches aren't too bad today. We are a bit vigilant because on the way in this morning we saw some elephant dung. Um, Now, apart from getting lost and dehydrated in the forest, I think the elephants are probably the most dangerous thing around here, so we're going to keep our eyes out. But I think we're safe. The dung looks as though it was at least a few days old, so we should be safe. So it's on to set up the experiment, and then we'll come back and check tomorrow. Well, I spoke too soon. I've just found a leech down my pants. Uh, about 30 seconds after I said the leeches aren't too bad today, I felt a slight stabbing pain on my well, my left buttock. And I put my hand down my pants and pulled out a tiger leech. It's actually quite an attractive thing. It's about four centimetres or so long when it's stretched out and it's currently sitting on my hand. It's, I keep rolling it so it's not biting me. And um, it's bright orange underneath, and it's patterned on its back with a kind of browny-green colour with black stripes. It's got a sucker on each end, and it's kind of looping around on my hand there. So I'm going to flick the thing away and keep moving. So we've arrived at our field site. We're about 400 metres into the pristine rainforest habitat here. And we're checking on an experiment that we set up to test a technique that we're going to be using in the oil palm plantations over the next few weeks. So the technique involves making tiny caterpillars out of plasticine and sticking them to the bottom of the leaves in these trees in the rainforest. Now it's a really simple technique but it's actually quite effective. And what it does is it tells us if there are any predators that might be eating the pests of the oil palm plantation where we'll be testing it there. So we stick these caterpillars on with superglue, try to avoid sticking our fingers together, and then we come back after a couple of days and check them to see if they've been nibbled by anything. So by looking at the nibble marks, we can tell whether they've been chewed by ants or by pecked by birds or by mammals. So then we can draw some conclusions about the kind of predators that there, there are in the forest and in the plantation and compare the two. So it's quite a positive result so far. We've just checked our tiny little caterpillars, and it looks like some of them have been nibbled, some of them have been nibbled by ants, maybe the odd bird. So what we're going to do is leave them for another day. We're off back to the field centre now, and then we'll come out tomorrow and check to see if they've been chewed to bits. Tim Cockrell and more from Tim in the coming weeks. We'll also have the first report soon from our correspondent in Antarctica. Well, I'm on board research vessel Quest, and we've come along the coast from Plymouth Sound into Cornwall, and we're just stationary, really, in a beautiful bay. OK, the, the weather is cold, damp, miserable, but it's calm, which is a plus. Where are we, Steve? 
We're just off the village of Corsand, which is just in southeast Cornwall, in the sheltered bay, which forms one of our shallower sites. Now, we're not moored here, but we're, we're stationary here in the bay. This is one of your sampling sites, and the deck below us is full of equipment. I just lowered one of those pieces of equipment over the side. What was that? That was a, it's like a series of tanks and a circular arrangement. Yeah, that's what we call a CTD, and that's a, an instrument that allows us to uh, measure the temperature and the salinity of the water as it passes down through the water column down towards the seabed. It also lets us collect samples of seawater from whatever depth we wish to do, and then we can look at the concentration of the nutrients in the water, but we can also use that water for various experiments. Uh, one experiment will be to look at how much primary productivity is, is going on, how much uh, phytoplankton growth. And what are the other experiments on the deck here? Some large grabbers, almost like things you'd find on the end of a JCB. Yeah, well, we're very interested in finding out how the, the organisms that live on the seafloor and in the seafloor, in the sediment itself, how they change from month to month. So what we have is a, we have something called a, a grab, which will take a big bite out of the seabed. We'll then sieve the, uh, the sediment over a mesh, and then we can remove the animals and find out exactly what lives there, how big they are, and, and how that's going to change when we come back um, in, in several months' time. And that's the point, isn't it? You're trying to get a record of what's going on over a relatively short period. Yes, um, the, what we're trying to do is understand how the whole ecosystem changes on a monthly basis. We know that there are very strong drivers in the marine environment from, from changes in temperature, but also in the, in the supply of food to the seafloor, um, which we have plankton blooms in the spring and in the late autumn. And that means that the, the animals that live within the marine environment are responding to things that change over very short time periods. And up until now, uh, it's been very difficult to understand exactly Exactly what will happen if we come back at different times of the year. Now, I'll let you get on because you've got to get an experiment going now. Yes, I've got to go and get myself some uh, sediment and, uh, and crack on. Well, Steve, thank you. This is the Planet Earth podcast, and it seems hardly a week goes by without a major earthquake somewhere in the world. I say seems because scientists at the British Geological Survey in Edinburgh are being asked again and again whether earthquakes are becoming more frequent. So are they? I went to talk to seismologist Brian Bapti. The recent earthquakes in Haiti, Chile, followed by magnitude 7 plus events in California and in Indonesia, have really led a lot of people to ask us, is the number of earthquakes increasing? Is it? If you look at the global statistics for earthquakes over the last couple of decades, the numbers of earthquakes aren't changing. If you look at magnitude 7 earthquakes, there's roughly 15 to 16 magnitude 7 plus earthquakes every year. And if you plot them on a graph and you look at that, you can see that on average, that's the number we've been getting every year for the last couple of decades. This year, we've had six magnitude 7 plus earthquakes. We're about a third of the way through the year. So we're really bang on target. So you're saying it's an average. Is that maybe how people have thought that they're are more because that you get clusters, you get groups together. That's exactly right. It's a bit like if you throw a dice, occasionally you'll roll three sixes together. Earthquakes are a bit like that as well. You'll get times when there are a few earthquakes that happen together, and then also you'll get pauses when there aren't so many earthquakes. But if you look over the year as a whole, or a number of years as a whole, the numbers are all roughly the same. 
Now, you can prove this, can't you, with this computer program you got up and, and the power of music. We'll run through a sequence of earthquakes for the last decade, and every time there's an earthquake, there'll be a noise, a little musical note, and what you'll be able to hear, hopefully, is that there'll be pauses, and then there'll be times when there are lots of notes all happening roughly at the same time. So, so each note is an earthquake? That's right. OK, so let's, let's play this. So each note is an earthquake. And there's some pauses. There's a longer pause now. And you can hear how occasionally you get clusters or little groups of earthquakes happening at the same time. Then we're in a longer pause, then a few more. So we had, what, there, um, South America, Indonesia... These events are all happening in the main global earthquake hotspots, if you like. They're big ones that are happening at plate boundaries. And you can see on the map that they're clustering around the Pacific in the main. Also several there together. That's right. So the, this idea that you get the clusters and gaps, earthquakes aren't happening regularly. They're not like a, a person's heartbeat. They're not going boom, boom, boom. They're going boom, 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 boom in that way. Can we turn it off now? Of course. <laughs> so we switched that off. That could be one reason that you get these clusters of earthquakes, mm-hmm. even though the average is unchanged. What about the fact that there are more people living in the world now? Is, is that another reason that more people can be affected by an earthquake now? It's certainly true to say that there are far more people living in earthquake-prone regions, mainly because of increases in global population. So there's this huge swathe of Asia that can be struck by big earthquakes stretching from Turkey, Iran, through India and into China, where global populations have really increased in a big way. And in those regions, earthquakes are capable of having far larger impacts than they have in the past. Also, there's a human perception thing going on here as well, because when earthquakes hit populated places, people notice them more. Obviously, we're far more aware of earthquakes that cause tragedies than the big earthquakes that happen in the middle of the Pacific. Could there be any reason, though, that earthquakes might increase? I mean, is there any link between climate change and earthquakes, for example? There isn't really a very strong relationship between earthquakes and climate change. There are some second-order effects, if you like, that might lead to increases in earthquake activity, but only in a really small way. One example of that is as glaciers melt, as ice caps melt, we get this phenomenon called glacial rebound. It's basically when the ice goes, the Earth's lithosphere tends to rebound, tends to push back up again, and that can result in earthquake activity. But generally, that won't be a a big factor. And the reason for that is that earthquakes are controlled by the motion of the Earth's tectonic plates. You've got these plates that are moving around, and that motion of the plates in turn is controlled by heat release deep inside the planet. Uh, And there's only a finite budget for this heat release, which means the plates move at roughly the same speed. They're not speeding up or slowing down. So the overall energy budget for earthquakes is roughly the same. So we wouldn't really expect earthquake activity to increase unless that energy budget increased. So really there's no reason, uh, as far as you know, as far as you understand how earthquakes happen, there's no reason for the number of them to increase. That's right. As far as we understand at the moment, perhaps over much longer timescales, once we have longer windows of observation, if you like, it might become clear that there, there, there are these clustering phenomena happen for a reason. But at the moment, it's not clear to us. So if I ask you, have the number of earthquakes increased, you will say... No. 
radical jazz experiment gone wrong, isn't it? <laughs> Seismologist Brian Bapti. Well, I'm down on the deck of the Quest and tremendous amount of activity. They're swilling a hose around right at the, the end, having brought the, the grab up. They are looking at what's in the, the sediment behind me and just move out of the way because someone's trying to get down a, a ladder. And with me is Steve Widdicombe and Sarah Dashfield. Uh, Steve, the amount of stuff going on here all simultaneously well that's the important thing about this uh, this uh, survey that we're conducting is the fact that the marine ecosystem the biology and the chemistry it all inter- interlinks and interacts and, and by looking at all aspects we get a, a big overview picture of how things trade off against each other for example there's the uh, we're looking at, at bacterial processes going on in, in one part of the sediment we're looking at how the supply of nutrients comes from the sediment and the overlying water and how that all feeds through into fueling the the benthic biodiversity that you've seen being sieved out over there well sarah let's let's talk about some of the the bigger things you've got you've got this beautiful is a cockle is it this spiny cockle called a canthicardium which is you've got held in your hand it's it's big isn't it it's almost the size of a tennis ball it is isn't it yes beautiful shape it is yes and lots of spines along the sort of ridges along the cockle so we've got another jar here of some of the other things you brought up now if we go from the the beautiful to the incredibly ugly this squirling mass of it just looks like a an ugly worm or perhaps a i don't know a diseased appendix That's actually um, a burrowing sea cucumber which lives within the sediment and burrows around. And what else have you got in here? We've got um, this is, is a shrimp here with a one enormous claw. Yes, that's a that's a burrowing shrimp. It creates sort of a burrow structure throughout the sediment, which is important um, for nutrient exchange and that sort of thing. And it also takes oxygen below the sort of like oxic layers of the sediment. So, Steve, you've got several sampling sites, and each one of these cores you've been doing at least five different different samples. So, so lots going on. What sort of picture are you, are you building up of, of this area? Well, what we'd like to be able to do is understand how ecosystems work at a, at a regional scale. So if we think about not just Plymouth Sound, but out into the coastal waters as well. So the sea... The seafloor is not just a a single type or a homogenous mass of just mud or sand. There's there's a whole variety of different habitats that we need to capture. And these habitats, they, they function very differently. So we need to do a number of different sites to be able to fully represent the, the variety of different habitats that we have in our coastal waters. Well, Steve and Sarah, thank you both very much for bringing me out on uh, the research vessel today. Fascinating. Thank you. You're very welcome. We'll be putting some pictures up on the Planet Earth online website of our cruise today. You can also follow us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter, and I'll be posting some recordings on Audio Boom. We love social networking. Speaking of which, if you like the Planet Earth podcast, do share it with your friends. I'm Richard Hollingham from Research Vessel Quest off the Cornish coast. Thanks for listening.